a platform for supporting the collective inquiry into deep impact. As a part of the Poetry of Impact, the Journey to Impact podcast brings to life the ebb and flow inherent on the path of impact, illuminating the interior journey of the hearts and minds of today's top leaders in impact. Here, you'll hear the intimate stories of those who push forward to overcome self-limitations and societal barriers, to co-create a world where one day all people and planet can thrive together. My name is Gino Borges, and I'm here with Jed Emerson to discuss the purpose of capital, and I'd like to thank all of you for joining today. A couple things that I would like to discuss before we get started is the structure of the conversation. I'll be going over a series of questions that I have that um, I have garnered after reading uh, Jed's book, and then also we will allow sort of the natural conversation to take place in terms of where it ebbs and flows. I will also be opening the line up to your questions as well. My preferred way for you to ask questions is in the chat room where I just typed hello to the right. And then that allows me to integrate the uh, question into the natural flow. At the end of the call, we will be opening up the floor entirely to uh, your questions. In terms of um, in terms of introductions, um, who am I? I'm new to some of you. Um, my name is Gino Borges, as I mentioned. Um, I am a partner and director of impact at Open Path Investments, a social impact real estate company, and I'm also a curator for uh, Making Money More, which is my um, ongoing evolutionary lifestyle platform that explores new ways to meaningfully engage money social impact, sensory awareness, and inner transformation. And our special guest today is Jed Emerson, who is um, a senior advisor to many family offices, including in Asia, the United States, and Europe. Also as a senior fellow with Tonic, a global impact investing network. In fact, we have a few Tonic members on the call today. Also a senior fellow with Impact Assets, a nonprofit financial services firm, and a senior research fellow with the Center for Social Investment in Heidelberg, Germany, which, Jed, I don't know if I mentioned to you, but my wife was born and raised in Heidelberg, and it's a beautiful city. Um, it is. It's a, it's, it's a really stunning city. I always think of it as is that it's an ancient version of Boulder, Colorado in some ways. <laughs> <laughs> and um, Jed's newest book, obviously, that drew um, our attention to this call and the one I'm excited to cover on this call is called The Purpose of Capital. And Jed and his um, and the benefactors who helped Jed with the process, and Jed will talk a little bit about what, what went on in terms of writing the book, creating the book, and getting the book started. Uh, the Purpose of Capital, Elements of Impact, Financial Flows, and Natural Being. Jed, is there anything you would like to add in terms of um, who you are, or do you feel pretty good about how you were introduced? Great. I appreciate being here and looking forward to the conversation. Great. So, Jed, um, we obviously were attracted to uh, this call by this uh, book that you wrote, but maybe step back a little bit and share with the audience on, on how you arrived at Impact Investing uh, Date yourself a little bit, get a little <laughs> sense of when this whole journey started. You're probably in it way before it was called impact investing, but maybe just a bit about the you know your own evolution in terms of getting to this space. Sure. Um, well, you know, I don't want to take the whole hour doing the the bio thing, but uh, I was raised outside of New York City. My uh, dad is a minister, was a minister. My mom was a social worker. Uh, so in some ways, I feel like I was, you know, bred to do community work. I started uh, in seventh grade as a peer tutor in Spanish Harlem, whole kind of youth development career, really, uh, into my late launched uh, the Larkin Street Youth Center, was the founding director uh, with a group of uh, community folks uh, to create a program working with homeless youth uh, and what have you. And out of that experience in my late 20s, I mean, I'd, all I wanted to do when I was a kid was just run a nonprofit and change the world and, you know, be the part of the good guys, kind of advocacy and uh, challenging 
existing structures and trying to create positive change. And I kind of woke up at 29 and I just realized that I had become part of this whole kind of nonprofit and philanthropic service system that was in some more focused on accommodating uh, dysfunction within society than actually challenging or changing that dysfunction. And at the time, this was the late eighties in San Francisco and, you know, uh, homelessness was, you know, still a, a big and important issue. And I feel like I had just become part of this process of accommodation almost, um, the program was really good, continues to be a very effective homeless and youth services organization. But I felt like I had become part of the, the process of, I think that, you know, philanthropy and in some ways uh, public sector funding really operates on the, the basis of politics, per- perception and persuasion as opposed to performance. And I began to feel like um, my job was to stand up and convince people of certain things so they would write me checks and we would go do our work, but that at the end of the day, we weren't fundamentally changing things. And so I just decided I needed to get at this in a different way and so transitioned out of that role and through a variety really interested in more kind of market and business approaches to community change and impact, if you will. And so I became then the founding director of the Roberts Enterprise Development Fund, which worked to um, bring philanthropic capital to for-profit companies that were owned by nonprofits to provide transitional employment to formerly homeless people. And uh, that experience kind of uh, brought me out of the nonprofit sector and into the for-profit sector and looking really at how do you use business and economics to create community change in addition to philanthropic and nonprofit strategies. And so out, out of that, realizing that I was basically having the same conversation with different actors, each of whom thought they were having very discrete challenges, but actually to my mind, they were all grappling with the same fundamental issue. Um, and so I was working with for-profit mission-driven investors, CEOs and founders of for-profit companies that were trying to create positive social and environmental change. I was working with nonprofits who were using you know, business to advance community-level impact and change. And what I realized is that all these people were grappling with what I came to understand as a bifurcated value proposition. Uh, the idea that society really is asking us to either do well or do good. You either make a grant or you make an investment. Um, you either work for the nonprofit sector or you work for the for-profit sector. And what I realized was that over time, I had somehow kind of morphed into this place of being completely agnostic about the delivery mechanism. So I I didn't really care if it was a nonprofit or a for-profit or cooperative uh, or the capital vehicle. Uh, I didn't really think in terms of grant investing. It was just all capital with different kind of levels of return and performance. And the issue really was how did you understand the nature of the value you were trying to create? And then what were the best kind of organizational forms and capital vehicles? Investor. And so that's how I kind of got into this whole conversation uh, 30 years ago now. Thank you, Jed. I don't know if it's by accident, but are you tapping your mute button? You, um, for some reason, you no. were your sound. Okay. For some reason, it, um, it muted you for a couple seconds there. Um, if you're just joining us, this is Gino Borges. I'm hosting Jed Emerson, the author of The Purpose of Capital on a Fireside Chat. And we just reviewed on how Jed um, arrived at the impact investing sphere. Was there anything um, in that particular um moment or in that evolution that you always knew you wanted to, that was leading to the purpose of capital, Jed? And what, was it something in the space itself that created a vacuum for this moment? I'd like to get a little bit under, a little better understanding of what drove you personally to uh, write the book. Well, I think what happened was, I, so I'm one of those people who, when I believe something, I am like totally, you know, 100 
with what I'm talking about, what we're doing, the change we're creating. And I think over the course of my life, I tend to to drive kind of ideology and practice into the ground until it doesn't work. And then you blow through the other side and you come up with something else that carries you forward into the next iteration of work. And so, you know, in the early part of my career, as I said, all I wanted to do was run a nonprofit and change the world. And, and the further I got into that career track, the more I both valued the work we were doing and understood the limitations of the practice that we were engaged in in the 80s. And so I then went full bore with venture for social entrepreneurship and, you know, this is going to be the new thing and this is what we really need <laughs> and all that. And so I threw myself into that for like another decade. And as I came out of that, I started thinking, you know, when you work with entrepreneurs, you can really see the downside of how investors approach the management and deployment of their capital and so I started thinking, well, gosh, you know, if I could just be a part of changing how people think about, you know, how you do investing and, and the fact that it, it's all about a total portfolio, manage all of your assets for impact. It's about, you know, deploying philanthropic near market and market rate capital through a variety of vehicles that have different risk return profiles and generate various forms of social and environmental impact. And all we've got to do is figure out how to do that. And we're good to go. And so, and that's what I did for like a decade was focus on that and wrote, you know, seven books on social entrepreneurship and impact investing. And I kind of woke up about, I don't know, three or four years ago. <laughs> and I realized that all of my conversations with people had devolved to strategy and tactics. Uh, everything was focused on the how. And if you look at our field, I think that's largely where we are. It's everybody has debates and discussions about metrics, about definitions, about performance, about fees, about structure. And what I started realizing was that the problem was that people were coming into the how and grappling with all of these challenges because they had blown by the why. They had basically assumed that we all were on the same page relative to understanding, you know, why we were here, the purpose and intent of our work. And, and as I stepped back from that, I kind of realized that I myself um, had kind of become complicit in that same kind of focus on practice as opposed to purpose. And, and I kind of realized that kind of coming at this in a, from a different place. And if we really clarified more about how we actually got here, you know, how was it that we created this world that was bifurcated, that had to be re-aggregated, that had to be kind of reconnected on a more holistic basis, um, that maybe the answers for what we should do would be like almost self-evident. Um, you know, Stein is, is said to have said that if he were given an hour to solve a, a problem that his life depended upon, that he would take 55 minutes to consider the question and then five minutes to propose a solution or an answer. And I thought that was really interesting to it the other way around. You go to any conference, you go to any investment committee meeting, you go to whatever, and all of the discussions are people talking evolution is if you invest in my fund or my firm or my organization, we're really going to break the back on poverty this time. And it suddenly struck me that, that I had fallen into this same trap. And so what I decided to do was just to stop and not go to any conferences, not read any reports on impact investing, not really talk to a lot of people, quite frankly, and try to spend time simply reading and catching up with what, what is it that we already know about how we got to this place of separation and how could we use you know, that to be better at executing our strategies maybe in the future. So that's, that's how I started kind of engaging in the work to begin with. And when you say you started reading, I'm guessing you read uh, more non-financial books than financial books as part of the purpose of capital. Is that correct? I Well, see, against the backdrop. See, I think of myself as a pretty intelligent person, <laughs> right? It's kind of like, you know, I have a master's in business administration. I have a master's in social work. I read the New York Review of Books religiously. It's kind of like I read a lot. I read all the stuff that, you know, or all the current books that everybody gets all excited about. And the more I read, the more I realized how uh, really ignorant I was and how much of what I understood as kind of 
the, you know, the process and history and philosophies of how we got here was really kind of bumper sticker level kind of understanding of stuff. And mm-hmm. the more you read seriously and the more philosophy, the more history, the more culture, um, political science, science, I mean, the more you read in areas that aren't affirming what you already know, the more you realize that you really don't know very much about how we actually got here. And so I, I reached this place on the one hand of, you know, really very sincere and deep inquiry. And on the other hand, just being really uh, humble, little I actually understood about anything. And that carries forward to today. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, ACM, if you had to look back at that uh, journey the past four years to get, um, because it does come across as sort of this longitudinal discovery, uh, your book, um, what uh, two or three books do you most identify with, non-financial books that serve as an underpinning or girded a lot of your thought? thought a lot about that. and. Um, you know, I always get asked this question of, you know, you read whatever it was, 250 some books. I created a reference library of 4,000 books that I would, you know, I'd be reading one thing and they would reference a philosopher or a tradition or a practice that I wasn't that familiar with. And I would literally be able to go across the room and pull down something that could give me kind of more context. And what I also realized though, in this process was that books that meant a lot to me four years ago don't mean that much to me now. And books that I think are pretty good now don't mean anything to other people because it's all a function of, you know, where you stand depends on where you sit. And so, you know, if, if you're, it's just a question of where you are in your own process. And so I, I really resist the, you know, the request to come up with like three or four, you know, best books. And in fact, in, in the book itself, in the purpose of capital, you know, I, Include the bibliography, which is, you know, really, to my mind, the, the starting place uh, in reading the book. And then I also have a best books section that kind of highlights, I think it's 30 or 35 books, because, you know, each of them were important at a certain stage and became less so over time as I morphed into this other place of, of understanding, I guess you'd say. Um, so, and so that's one set of thoughts around the books. But then I think the larger question is, you know, there's this Cohen that says, um, you know, open mouth first mistake, because <laughs> each of us is in our own place and our own journey. And as soon as you open your mouth to try to describe something to somebody, you become positioned in a posture, oftentimes in opposition to the other person's uh, position and place and perspective. And I think it's a question less of trying. We what we've done in our field is we're all trying to convince each other of various strategies and answers, whereas I think the answers actually come out of the space in between, if you will. The, the, the real answers, the things that will really drive our conversation, our personal journey, you know, ourselves and our practice forward. Um, really isn't something that I know now. It's something that in dialogue with you and others, we create and we discover uh, together in a process of mutual exploration. And that the problem with books is that they're static. Um, You know, they may represent a person's evolution over time, but fundamentally they're not an interactive kind of means. And so in, in kind of introducing the book and the piece of work, to our community this fall, I refuse to give any keynotes or any individual talks. And instead, everything that I've done has been in some form of dialogue, either this type of conversation um, or getting on a stage and being in in discussion and mutual exploration with somebody else who's coming at these same issues. Because these are these are just fundamental issues of meaning and purpose that we all, I think, grapple with, whether consciously or unconsciously. And, you know, the, the power of, of the work is in that dialogue and process of mutual discovery. And, and without having the historical background, I think we operate in this vacuum sometimes. And again, the more you, you read and reflect on the various processes and journeys of, you know, philosophers and scientists and uh, spiritualists, the more you kind of see that, that, that all... That, that we can be so much more powerful in the context of this discussion by actually shutting up <laughs> and, and listening to the voice of experience of history 
that is here to guide us and help us create kind of better, deeper, um, more fulfilling ways to position ourselves in that flow of history as we create our future together. Thanks, Jed. If you're just joining us, um, my name is Gino Borges, and I'm hosting Jed Emerson, the author of The Purpose of Capital. If you do have a question, uh, to the right is a chat room option. You can type your question in there, and I can integrate your question into the conversation. In the meantime, I'd like to uh, explore that a little bit deeper, Jed, because a lot of what you mentioned was um, an emphasis on the mind, an emphasis on reading, an emphasis on interpretation. But what happens if we go below the chin? I'd like to understand a little bit more about uh, an embodied way of getting at um, at impact and a more sensorial way. And, and I know you're a musician and I know you're living 8,500 feet above sea level right now in the midst of the Rocky Mountain National Park or close to it. And so I know nature connection is um, a part of your understanding of life as well. I'd like to understand a little bit more on your own journey beyond the mind and how it might have shaped the purpose of capital. And then maybe how you've also learned from others in terms of what they're doing in non-conventional ways to be able to shape this conversation on the purpose of capital that doesn't necessarily involve uh, cerebral, mindful uh, practices which tend to be sort of the dominant uh, paradigm for um, for you know for understanding yet what we understand is is that the body probably does more interpreting than the mind so um, I'd like to hear a little bit more uh, on that angle Jed well <laughs> let me just think about this for a second I, I guess um, you know I, I'd spend a lot of time outside and I, I feel as if I am, very much oriented toward the earth and to the woods and the mountains and, and things like that. Um, and one place, um, I try to be, to be quite feel as connected as I can with that context and that environment. Um, it's almost like a, an earth representation of the philosophy that I'm talking about. My wife is Norwegian and our family has a, a small little cabin, you know, up in the Norwegian mountains that sits just under, hike under uh, the cabin of Arne Ness, who's the Norwegian philosopher who oh, yeah. coined the concept of deep ecology. And you're up, and this is an area that is kind of above timberline. Uh, there's no trees. It's, it's really kind of rough and rugged. And when you climb up on uh, of Scarvet, which is this kind of um, mountain that sits sideways almost, it's kind of hard to describe. It's this crust that kind of forces itself up out of the earth. And when you are on top of that and sitting, not, not hiking, you know, like you're not, you're not trying to like summit, you're not trying to dominate, you know, the mountain, you're trying to you know, as, as John Muir would say, you know, you're trying to be present in the, in the place and context of, of the earth as you're reflecting on who you are and how you are, I think. And so I, there's a way that, um, it's kind of weird because I, I tend to be, I do tend to be very left brain kind of oriented as I think about these things. And if you go far enough into the, the intellectual and the framing out to a very spiritual place, um, when, you, when you reach the limits of metrics, when you, when you go deep into physics, um, when you really you know, touch the earth and understand that you're touching you know, millions of years of history, uh, these all are ways that it just kind of blows your brain open in order to create a space for... I'm not even sure I would say my heart, but simply, you know, this other sense of present forward. Uh, it's like the idea that thought um, is a, a, a function. It's a ladder uh, that in some ways can, can bring you up to a place of uh, experiencing consciousness in a different way, uh, because there are so many limitations uh, to how humanity thinks about things that when you push through those in the same way that I described how I think over the course of my life, I push through different ideological 
Bible and other conceptual frameworks to go to this other place. And if you do that other side and trust that it's okay, whatever it is that is on the other side, uh, it can be a phenomenally liberating set to have both emotionally uh, and intellectually. It kind of like synthesizes and you just kind of go up and out um, in a way that, you know, thinking logically, thinking linearly, uh, linearly uh, on its own doesn't do. And for me personally, simply trying to be present uh, doesn't allow for quite either because I, t- I tend to then just get too far off into my head, into my, uh, <laughs> not into my head, but into my emotions and my perspective, but I don't have any way to frame or understand or contextualize it. So I think it's this synthesis really of, of both head and heart uh, that you're describing. And, and that's the, the power and the force. And when I, when I read and I, you, you visualize the lives of these other folks, whether you're reading about Gilgamesh uh, or you're reading about Spinoza, it's, um, it's, it's this way that you can almost get out of your own head. You can get out, out of in order to experience uh, humanity's process of becoming in a way that we just don't allow, I think, uh, enough opportunity for experience and benefit from. So, I want to take uh, something that you mentioned because it's sort of been um, something that I've tried to challenge the impact investing space on is, is that I know that metrics are used as a function to organize, to um, standardize, to scale. I would like to sort of know how you navigate the whole metric conversation. Like where does the metric conversation provide value for us as impact investors? And then where does it start to become a limiting force as a field? And then also as, uh, and then also um, at the personal investment level? Well, uh, I mean, I've done battle with metrics, you know, most of my professional life. When I was a kid and running, you know, Larkin Street, metrics were simply something that we did uh, to prove to the, you know, the city that we didn't take the money and go to Tahiti kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. uh, so we had to like, and I literally would just kind of like walk down uh, the desks of my caseworkers. And I would just say like, how many kids did you serve this last week? It's all by hand, right? This is like in the eighties. We didn't really have, you know, well-formulated data tracking systems and stuff. Um, and I would just put these forms together and send them off. And so they never had anything to do with informing practice or improving the service delivery or the quality of the experience of our clients. It was simply to justify stuff to third-party outside actors. And then as you get more and more into the philanthropic space, you start having these outside evaluators and monitors who come in and use metrics to basically pass judgment on you. Mm-hmm. So you have these people who know really nothing about your context or situation who come in and try to quantify aspects of, of what you're doing. Um, and so I've always hated, you know, that part of metrics. And so when we began approaching the metrics conversation at the Roberts Fund, we, I think, convened the first kind of working group on social return on investment in the early mid 90s, um, you know, published a piece on it in 96 and then spent about three or four years, you know, really refining that and then published a whole set of documents in 2000 on social return on investment. And And what we did is we we basically, we, we had multiple kind of levels of performance that we were looking at. And one was simply straight econometrics, you know, uh, this, the social enterprise, the business side of the operation, uh, the finance and the economic side. And then what we said as well, be socioeconomic, and this would be monetizing the economic value of social impact because people coming into the businesses that we were operating cost center to the public sector. They were people who and had multiple contacts with mental health, uh, with the general hospital system, with the criminal justice system. Um, they were on, uh, you know, various forms of general assistance. And so you could actually quantify what that individual represented as a cost center. And then over time, as they, you know, got off of those, you know, various, uh, as they started earning money, as they started paying taxes, they actually a benefit. Uh, to that same system. And so we would, you know, track those aspects of value creation in the enterprise. And then above that, we felt there was the pure kind of social value piece 
uh, that was really qualitative. And so we would look at, you know, creating reports that would combine and integrate these three aspects of performance. And, and to my mind, that's how you assess and approach social return on investment. The, the problem with that approach, though, is, is a couple fold. One is that it's, it's very, it can be very complex. We had pretty elegant kind of systems and ways that we started tracking and managing this information and data. But at the end of the day, you know, it, it was a layer above. It was not really operationally oriented. And so we started talking mm-hmm. about how do you create social MIS? How do you create management information systems that actually could inform the work of the people doing the work and that you could use with clients and more about their process and progress. And so, you know, that's kind of, to my mind, that was the pinnacle of the quality of the work that I was engaged in with metrics. And what happened is over the 90s and into the odds, more people begin to pay attention to this metrics conversation, but it became reductive. Uh, It became a process of, can I come up with one metric that can be the equivalent of a financial return on investment metric. Mm-hmm. And so um, you started seeing different groups, uh, you know, across across the world really roll out these different iterations on these types of strategies, but trying to boil it all down to one number so they could have an quote, apples to apples comparison. And um, and I, I became really frustrated with the conversation at that point and, and quite frankly, largely left, you know, the whole metrics discussion um, because what I, I kind of concluded was that, for the most part, the investor community really wasn't interested in street-level life impact. They were interested in documenting performance of their wealth impact um, and, and kind of almost using metrics as a way to justify uh, their investment strategy and practices. And, and I just personally, and I get that. I understand that, you know, that's where folks are coming from. It's quote, my money. And so I understand what my money is doing. But again, if you step back and this goes to the, the more philosophical, but if you understand wealth differently, if you understand it less as a question of ownership and more as a question of stewardship, if you understand the process of your evolution as an individual investor as being less about you and more about the other, if you will, with a capital O, you begin to see just the fundamental limitations of the way people are talking about metrics and how really useless um, a lot of the metrics are that people are promoting. And so, you know, I wrote an article called uh, The Metrics Myth that basically on the one hand said, you know, look, uh, this is all bullshit. And on the other hand, we have to engage in this conversation and practice because it's all part of our evolution and development. And so I think that's kind of how I think about, you know, metrics today is it's kind of, we need to be having these conversations, but we should not confuse a tool with task. But think that just because we have a really uh, great metric, that somehow that captures the total value proposition that we claim we're interested in advancing. Uh, we need to understand the limitation of the tool. And the problem is um, people become so convinced of their own righteousness as they think that they're creating new strategies and practices that they kind of, uh, they lose sight of, of what this is all supposed to be about, um, which is not justifying capital deployment. It's about transformation and change and really helping all of us become more actualized, both as investors and as investees and multiple stakeholders. Thank you, Jed. If you're just joining us and you've come in and out of the conversation, my name is Gino Borges. I'm here with Jed Emerson, the author of The Purpose of Capital. Jed, can you discuss a little bit more by what you mean by documenting wealth impact versus um, documenting um, the actual impact on the ground? Or um, Because I think there's a lot of that conversation going on, but I don't want to assume we all know what it means. Uh, but can you give a little bit of a give us a flavor of what it means to document our wealth impact? Sure. Well, I think. Um, well, first off, I, I, it, it means different things to different people, so we have to acknowledge that. When I talk about it, I, I think of it against the backdrop of outcome funding, which was a term that was very popular in the early nine. You know. Uh, people began to say, look, it's not about, you know, how many people were served. It's about the outcomes 
that were generated through providing those services to those folks. And so I think that we need to be kind of aware that that, that should be our orientation. And now the, the problem is that's really hard to do. If you really, are, if you really care about outcomes, you're talking about taking a long-term perspective, um, which usually means looking beyond the time period of your investment. Uh, if you're a grant maker, you know, maybe long-term is three years. <laughs> um, if you're an investor, you know, long-term might be five years, maybe seven, but certainly not 15 or 50. And the, the reality is that, you know, climate changes uh, in decades and centuries. It doesn't change in, if you will, um, it, it doesn't only change in seasons, I should say. When you look at how most investors in the outcome funding conversation approached it is they basically simply announced they were funders and began asking of their grantees that they report out on outcomes instead of inputs and outputs and yet made no investment in the infrastructure that would be required to actually report outcomes in a meaningful way. And so all we did was basically create another level of deception in the dance of deceit between people with money and people who want money. And, um, and I think this is largely what we're seeing today is that um, you get all of this rhetoric about performance and metrics and, and documentation and everything, and all of it really coming, quite frankly, I think largely from the asset owning community, whether philanthropic or impact investor or now increasingly uh, market rate for profit investors are also uh, everybody's talking about their great metric systems. Um, but we're not making the investments on the ground that actually enable, you know, managers, activists, um, you know, program participants to create uh, information systems that actually inform practice, that actually help individuals understand transformation and change. Uh, you know, we're in this weird environment where the, you know, the public language coming out of Washington doesn't even believe in science and metrics. And yet, you know, uh, we have more and more initiatives that are telling us of the importance of that. And so I think to really understand, well, who are the metrics for? Uh, mm-hmm. Who controls the definition of terms and practice? Uh, how are those metrics used to inform practice as opposed to, you know, justify an allocation to a third party, whether an investor or a public uh, sector actor? I mean, again, it's a question of power and control and, and, defining these terms in ways that have meaning. And so you look at, you know, Acumen uh, has launched a lean data initiative that uh, Sasha Dichter is managing and has done a really advancing, which really does try to to get at that lower level. Um, You have other groups that are looking at stakeholder voice and how do you drive that into the metrics and, and performance conversation in a meaningful way uh, for impact investors. Um, so you have folks, I think, who are really trying to create better operating systems, if you will, for metrics. Be um, asking the question of, of why? Like, wh- why are we doing this? Um, what is it that we really hope to get out of it? And how will it actually be connected to change? Uh, not the generation of a new impact report that I can hand out to my peers or that I can present at a conference and somehow tell myself that my life matters because uh, this metric went from here to there. Kind of a cynical take, but you know, (laughs) it's kind of what we got. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And do you, do you see much of, you know, in, in academia or in public school and education in general, they always talk about teaching to the test and, I sometimes see a similar vibration in the impact investing space where people are investing to the metric. Um, do you, you know, I mean, do you see a similar analogy there from teaching to the test, investing to the metric in terms of what you just described a little bit? I think that the systems are still in flow. Um, and so I don't know that there's a specific test uh, that we can, you know, teach too in that in that way that you're describing. But I do see, you know, some of the the newer actors who are coming on the scene who who really think that the the solution here is that we need to have better metrics. And once we have better metrics, then everything else kind of comes along. 
And, uh, you know, you just have to smile uh, because it is so incredible. And, and these are people who are in other spheres of life, you know, super successful yeah. in part because they don't define reality within this, um, this confined space. So they say financial metrics is what matters. You know, here's how you execute against financial metrics and that's how you make your millions. Great. Like we know how to do that, right? That can be done. But is that really what this conversation is about? And obviously I would say no. And yet that same thinking is what they're bringing into this space. And they're like, all we need is just better metrics and impact investing will really scale. And my response obviously is, you know, to what end? And is that really, you know, the answer? I mean, are, are, is that really what where we've come? And I, I would argue that, again, as I said at the start of our conversation, you know, that, that the answers really are revealed through bringing multiple lenses to the place of our analysis. And when you layer different lenses together, you see in total what it is that we should be paying attention to. And yes, I mean, obviously part of it is capital <laughs> performance and how we understand the financial elements of what we're, quote, investing in. And, um, you know, there's the the comment of uh, we should not confuse, you know, that the map is not the territory. The word is not the thing, right? It's not that, you know, the, the metrics matter. It's they, they're a means to an end. And I think that um, a lot of folks seem to be confusing, you know, the two. And we end up with what Martin Luther King Jr. referred to as, uh, you know, guided missiles and misguided men. And I think that um, we need to be very clear, like what this is about. And, um, and that, you know, the fact that you have metrics that somehow, to your mind, document and justify a strategy does not mean the strategy was successful. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I'm, um, I'm always the one in the back of the room that stands up after hearing a conversation on metrics that um, probably just my inner trickster always asked, you know, what is the opportunity cost of this metric? And as long as we can have a conversation in parallel to what people are are essentially grasping onto as a literal framework as opposed to a figurative framework. If the parallel conversation is about opportunity costs, I tend to feel much more comfortable in the room. It's when there's a literality around the paradigm that I get really nervous um, around right. it. Um, right. Well, and, and I, it, yeah. And, and, yeah. And it really begs the question that, I mean, maybe part of what impact investing needs is also an ongoing conversation on just the philosophy of science and the philosophy of knowing. Because I think that unless people have uh, some type of fundamental understanding of epistemology, uh, the field of knowing, and then the f uh, philosophy of science and how methods actually shape the outcome and and um, and and how that's all a creative, socially constructed um, exercise. It just seems like that would be one way to keep the evolution of the space alive. I mean, would you believe uh, that? Well, so here's the trick. So yeah. that is certainly true. And the, the best way to get there is to approach the conversation from a posture of humility, uh, is to say, in fact, I don't know. Uh, I may be very smart and clever, but I may not be the smartest kind of person in the room, um, which when you have a money and you're basically controlling the power relationship is actually kind of a hard position to strike um, because everybody is telling you, you know, how smart you are and how clever and how good looking, uh, largely because, of course, they want to access your capital. And that's true for philanthropy. It's true for wealth holders of various types. Um and I think for practitioners, it's also, it's very challenging because you have to present a front of competence and conviction. You have to be able to say to people, you know, in exchange for your million, million dollar, uh, I'm going to generate this level of impact and, and transformation on the ground. And so God forbid, you should spend the million and come back and say, you know, it actually turned out differently from what we thought. <laughs> we actually have direction or we had to modify you know and so i think that we've created this whole idea that we actually have answers that we all we have to do is follow the algorithm and we'll get the right solution set presented uh all we have to do is get the right definition the right metrics and this will all be worked out in time and if you if you really read history if you really sit with philosophy if you really study 
I think the process of scientific evolution and development series of failed initiatives and hubris. <laughs> and mm-hmm. and it, it's really out of that, if we're lucky, we have some sense of position within a given point in time where we say, okay, between where I stand today and where I stand 10 years from now, I'm going to take a set of readings, if you will, and use metrics to kind of guide me in a way that will be directionally, I pray and hope, accurate, but ultimately will take me somewhere that will give me a whole nother perspective on where I stand today and will prove that I was wrong today because I have new insight, right? And so it's this process of, of humility and openness and evolution and revolution that we're losing as we seek to commodify impact, as we seek to create products that are conforming, that can be distributed nationally, that can, quote, scale internationally. And so this is all what kind of drove me to this place of saying, this is fucking insane. Like, we've got to stop and just reconsider, like, what is it that we're really doing here? How did we get here? And and the best part of this is that we actually know this. Humanity has spent centuries reflecting on these issues of meaning and purpose, of the connection and linkage between you know wealth and justice and equity. I mean, these are not new things, and yet we seem to convince ourselves. I mean, Arnold Toynbee, who's a historian, said that every generation is convinced that it is the pinnacle of development. And on the one hand, it's true. Like What we know today is so much more than what my parents knew or what my grandparents knew. Uh, and yet, so much less. Um, we we become so convinced that that our technology, our algorithms, our philosophies, our experience are superior to the previous generations that we lose sight of the we had and continue to offer through history and through reading and everything else wisdom and insight that could actually really help us today. We consistently operate in an ahistorical context. Mm. And all of this is why I, I really think that we need to spend talking and more time listening to history and what history has to say to inform how we are present and how we're called to be in a process of becoming, because that's what we are. We are connected backwards and we're connected forward. And, and what I try to do in the purpose of capital is to just kind of blow up some of how we think um, and open up a process of reflection that the book does not present any answers <laughs> uh, to the pro- to the purpose of capital. It doesn't really say this is what it is. You know, I have like one line, I think, where I try to get close to that. But I mean, basically, it's a process of reflection and stepping back and listening. And that's what's really largely absent. And, and that's why, you know, the ebook is free and I've priced the paperback and hardback at cost, you know, with no royalties or anything, because I really think we need to change our conversation. Um, because the importance, the critical importance of the issues we're talking about in terms of income equity and in terms of, um, you know, justice, in terms of really shifting power relationships. I mean, these are important things. And when you go to the conferences and you read this coming out, Everybody is leading with their solutions and their answers. And I think that at some point before we lock on to the next solution set that we're all is so convinced is going to get us where we need to go, we just need to pop up and just listen and connect in a much, much deeper way with what this fundamental purpose is that we seek. Now, you mentioned the word scale. Um, that's another word you talked about or that gets used on you know, sort of unreflectively. Um, can you talk about sort of your relationship with the term scale? And then also, is there a meaningful way to scale? And how do we scale meaningfulness? Um, and maybe that's a dance upon itself, but I'd like to get your understanding on how your relationship with scale has evolved and where, like, you see sort of a meaningful way to sort of get you know, to take an account what you've shared this past hour and then to sort of like, how do we move it out into the world? Can we move it in each little minor context or like, is there an opportunity for a certain amount of dilution that inevitably happens when things start 
being transported um, over, you know, nation states, over borders and outside the context. And just naturally when something's converted into a financial product. Um, so, yeah, maybe just sort of sort of give us a taste of what that term scale means to you and 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 how it's evolved for you a little bit. Well, I think, you know, in the book, I have a chapter on scale, uh, scale and the impact commons. And I, I think the thing that's important for us to understand is that you can scale for breadth and you can scale for depth. And there are probably a lot of other ways that we can slice and dice the notion. But I think that what we need to be careful about is confusing um, scaling for breadth with effectiveness and efficiency and, you know, again, achieving what it is that we hope to get. Um, and when you think about impact at scale, I think we're often talking about, you know, ETFs or, <laughs> you know, yeah. some, something that can be large distributed impact. It's not necessarily bad. Like, you know, if I'm doing vaccination programs or literacy or, you know, these types of things, scaling for breadth is a good thing. That said, uh, we shouldn't confuse that with the success of scaling for depth, with, with being able to really roll out a deeper connection and intentionality about the work that we're engaged in and doing. Um, when we think about scaling impact, for me, the, the, the pinnacle of impact investing is the whole notion of mutual impact and the fact that we as actors in the space have the opportunity to become as transformed, evolved, and changed uh, to have as much impact, if you will, in our own lives and meaning and sense of purpose as those that we are concerned with and that who are the, if you will, the objects of our impact. That, that impact is not something that we should attempt to scale as a way to do things to other people. Uh, impact is really something that, that we are each involved in in a reciprocal kind of relationship and manner. And if you think about justice in the form of the truth and reconciliation in South Africa following the fall of apartheid, you know, that's scaling impact. That, that is, you know, deep. It is transformative. It is ways. It's not something that I do as an investor because I have the money and I control the power relationship. And so I get to define, you know, like what impact is. And, you know, it's not that. It is basically opening myself up to this process. And, and the problem with scaling impact investing is that it will simply become one more process of disintermediation. It'll be one more way that we become separated from other it will become one more way we pay other people to do shit that we should be doing ourselves and being engaged in ourselves. Um, and so we need to be very careful as we think about, you know, what is it that we're really trying to do here? And how do we, you know, on the one hand, deploy literally trillions of dollars of capital in pursuit of a changed world and at the same time, maintain a connection with, um, you know, you see the, the, the development of experiential wealth management where you have, you know, folks who are being organized into groups that go out into communities that are in dialogue, you know, with miners, with um, franchised, with, you know, however you want to frame it. Um, you know, these are examples of ways that people are trying to reconnect with the power of their wealth. Uh, both positively and negatively, and open themselves up to be changed by the relationship with capital uh, in the same way that I think uh, franchise communities have tried to defend themselves from the impact of our capital uh, over the centuries. So I think that this is all part of the process of understanding appropriate scale, uh, scale for depth versus breadth, and this whole notion of engaging in mutual impact as opposed to directed impact at others. Wow, this is fantastic. I'm loving this conversation. I do want to honor <laughs> people's... Yeah. Um, they see, um, I mean, this reminds me in the old days when I would be able to engage in long, much longer conversations than I am now, but um, it really feels good and it feels right and just in so many ways. I do want to honor people's time. Um, if um, we're going to spend a few more minutes here with uh, Jed Emerson, 
the author of The Purpose of Capital. If you have a question, you can either ask it in the chat room or you can unmute yourself now and ask uh, Jed directly and we will field um, your call. If not, I will take a few moments to wrap up the conversation. There's a little unmute um, icon on your screen. If you have a question for Jed, you can ask directly. There's still in recovery from that last answer. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> um, for sure. Well, uh, Jed, do you have any, um, uh, Lucas, do you have a question? I do. I was just curious, uh, now that you've worked in those different fields, do you have any thoughts on whether looking at a for-profit or a non-profit venture is more advantageous um, just after you've done what you've done? And, and obviously, it's going to be the heart of the leaders of the organization that I think drive it. But just from like the way it's viewed in the public, the way it's viewed by investors, what are your thoughts? Um, well, again, I think it goes back to this question of intent and, and what is it that you're trying to do? I think, um, and also I think it's a question of understanding where you are in your own process of development and evolution. For some entrepreneurs, um, they, they're at a place where they need to prove to themselves that the business that they're engaging in has embedded capital, I mean, sorry, embedded impact, um, and advances positive value in X, Y, Z ways and can do that in order to create a level of financial return for shareholders and investors that is, you know, at X level. Um, there's a set of kind of operating assumptions that some entrepreneurs kind of come into the process with. And so the, the type of organizational form that they create needs to reflect what they're trying to do. There's another set of actors who are coming to the table and saying, I'm interested in multiple stakeholder ownership. I'm interested in creating investment structures where outside investors can be rewarded for their investment, but where that's not in done in a way that it extracts value from the very community that they profess to be concerned about. And so that looks more like a a hybrid vehicle. It looks more like a cooperative ownership structure, you know, that there's, there's other ways that you can kind of create that organizational entity uh, to get you what you want. And so I think part of what's been interesting over the years is I've had so many conversations with entrepreneurs who, who get trapped in a certain structure or vehicle or process uh, because they haven't really I mean, again, this is where we all kind of like lightly think about this stuff at the front. And then as we really get into it, we realize, well, wait a minute, that's not really what I thought I was working for. And so uh, it can change and shift. And so you see folks who basically drive a certain business model and end up, you know, quote, cashing out or, you know, being bought out or whatever it is, because they actually want to go off and do what they really thought they were trying to do 10 years ago, but they got kind of misdirected into these different vehicles that didn't necessarily get them there. And the trick is, and this is going to sound a little weird, but it's all good, right? I mean, each mm -hmm. of these are the right answer at a certain point in time for where a certain set of stakeholders are in their understanding of what this quote unquote is. And so it's not so much that any one of them are best or the ones we all should let gravitate toward as much as that these are all different options in front of us. They're all different tools from a toolkit that we can pull out and apply. And it's critical what that intent and purpose is. And so you know, that's why, you know, in the book and in my conversations, I'm trying to say that, that we actually know how to do a lot of this stuff. It is this question of, you know, we need to spend that 55 minutes really thinking through very deeply what our intent and purpose is, because actually it only takes about five minutes for you to figure out kind of like, well, here's the vehicles that'll get us there fastest. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Lucas. Thanks, Jed, for that response. I'm very thoughtful in terms of understanding um, how form really is and the medium um, actually becomes the message in, in a lot of ways. Um, I want to, again, thank uh, Jed Emerson, the author of The Purpose of Capital, and for you joining the first uh, Making Money More uh, series on the journey to impact. If you enjoyed this fireside chat, you'll enjoy, um, perhaps you'll enjoy uh, participating in our March 18th one with John Fullerton, the founder of the Capital Institute. 
who has a lot of exciting things to share as well. And then uh, March 25th, we will be uh, interviewing Joel Solomon, the author of Clean Money, and a few other um, impact investors are in the scheduling pipeline and hope hopefully have some more for you as well here in uh, April and May. Uh, Jed, again, th- thank you so much for your time, your thought, and um, I can feel the passion over the Uber conference line. It's awesome. <laughs> well, thank you all very much for taking the time. And uh, Gino, thank you for this uh, invitation. Great. Good deal. Thanks, everybody. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to The Journey to Impact. If you enjoyed this episode, help us spread the word by subscribing to this series on Apple Podcasts and sharing with your friends on your favorite social media platform. For a preview of our previous or upcoming episodes, visit www.poetryofimpact.com. 